Hello and welcome to PodRocket, the podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at LogRocket.com. Hello, I'm Chris, and with us today we have Aaron Gustafson. Aaron was on PodRocket back in 2021 to talk about progressive web apps. But before we jump in, can you give us a brief description about yourself and what you've been up to since we last spoke? First of all, thanks for having me back. So I've been continuing to do a bunch of stuff since 2021. So in the interim, I've continued to work a lot on progressive web app related specs at the W3C, where I'm an editor on the web app manifest spec, as well as the app information spec, which has to do more with how web apps appear in things like app stores and those sorts of online services for distributing web apps. But I've also shifted in my role. So I work at Microsoft and I had previously been on the Edge browser team where I was being able to focus on progressive web apps. And now I've shifted into our central accessibility org. And I'm actually running the AI for accessibility grant program. And I've been with the team for about a year now. And through that program, we fund accessibility innovation globally. That's research, nonprofits, universities, startups, all kinds of people who are looking to use technology to improve the lives of people with disabilities. So that's been a bit of a shift for me career-wise, but honestly, a continuation of my interest in using technology to break down barriers for people and include more people in being able to participate in modern life. Just talk about what exactly a PWA is or Progressive Web App and why even build one. PWAs have been around, gosh, for seven years now. And honestly, it's a marketing term like DHTML was back in the day or Ajax and so on and so forth. And really what it means is having a website that is capable of doing more. And in most cases, this is capable of doing more in terms of being able to work offline more like a traditional binary application would be able to work. Although there are some binary apps now that need to be outlined in order to be able to do anything. I think that line's getting blurrier and blurrier, it seems every year. But PWAs can work offline. They can appear as an application, let's say in your dock, if you're on Mac or in the start menu and so on, if you're on Windows, on your home screens, depending on what mobile operating system you're on. And PWAs can really extend their reach a bit more and integrate with the operating system that they're on. So some of the capabilities that people have been taking advantage of a lot is things like integrating into the share charm on Windows, for instance, or in Android, being able to show up as a target that you can direct the sharing of a link to or an image or something like that. There's all sorts of APIs that have come about since we last talked in terms of being able to integrate with the file system. I wrote a proposal and we have a proof of concept in flight in Windows 11 now where you can actually drive a Windows 11 widget from a PWA, which is pretty amazing. There's lots of ways that we're starting to see these sorts of deeper integrations into the operating system in ways that only traditional applications have been able to do that have been built bespoke for a given platform. And what we're trying to do is level the playing field and allow web apps to be able to play in that sandbox regardless of the platform that they're going out to. So we're trying to create APIs that can bridge the gap and provide that same level of experience no matter what the end user's platform is or what browser they happen to prefer. I've built a couple of PWAs 
probably a couple of years ago. It's been a while since I've heard the term PWAs being tossed around on the internet. Way back when it was like for the offline support, but also just to give it like that native app feel, I guess yeah. was more or less. But I think the big blocker for me back then was push notifications. Yeah, we didn't have those on iOS for a long time. Now we do, which is awesome. And they don't use the term PWAs, but Apple has been slowly adding more and more of the PWA-related features, the things that we think about in terms of being kind of quintessential PWA stuff. So that's better support for the web app manifest, better support for service workers for things like push notifications, like you mentioned. That's been a really huge deal for them bringing that support. And they had some announcements at WDC this year that really begin to create that sort of parity on desktop as well, which is really cool. It's very exciting to see everything come together, even though, as you say, the term PWA may not be being as used because we go through lots of hype cycles. But the underpinning technologies for progressive web apps are useful in so many scenarios, whether you're building a quote unquote web app or not. That's something that can be useful to you if you're building any sort of website, honestly. So I guess, what is the state of PWAs in 2023 now? What do you think it's going to look like in the future? Honestly, we just keep getting more and more APIs. There's a lot of work that's happening within the Chromium project under the codename Fugu, which is all about deeper integration with OS concepts, like being able to have a contact picker, being able to integrate with payments, integrate with biometrics, integrate, as I said, with the file system, being able to handle more kinds of share, like the sharing with files versus sharing a URL related, but two kind of different things. We now have view transitions beginning to land. And to your point earlier about wanting to have something that felt more app-like in terms of the fluid transition from screen to screen, where maybe a component that's on one screen enlarges and moves over and shifts and stuff like that. That's all made possible by the view transitions, both the API and what's available in CSS for being able to do that without having to invoke JavaScript at all. There's just so much new stuff that's coming out that doesn't fall neatly into the bucket of what we defined PWAs as back in the beginning, where it was Web App Manifest and Service Worker and HTTPS. They were the bar to like what you needed in order to be able to have something that we would consider a PWA. And that bar still exists, but I think people are starting to understand that you don't need to have push notifications in order to consider what you're building to be a PWA. You don't need to go really deep in various areas in order to do it. You don't even need to use all of the different properties within the web app manifest. In fact, the manifest doesn't even require any properties. So you can be very selective about which features you want to activate. And I think we're just starting to mature in our understanding of that and that we can pick and choose the right technologies and the right APIs for the given project that we're working on. A couple of years back, Cloud4 wrote a great blog post that talked about how they actually approached the development of their PWA for their own website in a progressive fashion where they were enhancing the PWA over time, adding new functionality because it was very easy to do that in a discrete way where they could be like, okay, we're going to start out with just making it installable and hitting that baseline for installability. And then we're going to add this, and then we're going to add that, and then we're going to continue to improve. And I think people are starting to understand that as a viable approach. And larger companies are always slow to adopt these new concepts, but PWAs are starting to show up in many more places. I think since the last time we spoke, there have been a number of releases from Microsoft where Outlook is a PWA Teams 
I think as a PWA now, a lot of the sort of core pieces of Microsoft web-based products are PWAs. Office released as a PWA. There's all of these things that are happening. Large companies are starting to buy into this and to leverage the APIs and the technologies that make PWAs, whether or not they're considering it a progressive web app. They are taking advantage of the affordances from that approach. Awesome. What is progressive enhancement? My mental model around that is your baseline is the minimal requirements to just have the app run and be usable. But depending on what technologies are privy to you, right, whether it's your phone, internet, whatever, we can progressively enhance that experience. Yeah, it's really about starting with a universally accessible baseline. So when you are thinking about any given screen or interaction page, however it is that you view what it is that you're building for the web, thinking about what is the core thing that somebody is coming here to do and how do I remove as many technical barriers from them being able to do that? If you are requiring JavaScript to be able to fill in a form, is there a way that you could do that without requiring JavaScript to fill in the form? Because there are people for whom that JavaScript may not run. And there's a myriad reasons why that would happen. And it probably affects somewhere between 1% to 3% of your users, which will vary over time. And some of them have absolutely no control over whether the JavaScript runs or not. And accepting that reality that we don't control where our websites are executed, we want to make sure that somebody can check out on our site if we're selling things, right? We want to make sure they can give us money. We want to make sure they can do that regardless of what version of CSS is supported or whether they have support for TC39 2018 or what have you, whatever version of JavaScript, et cetera. We want to make sure that it will just work. And so we start with that baseline that's going to work for anyone. It may not be the flashiest thing. It may not be the best overall experience, but it will work. And then we can use the various layers of technology that we have within HTML, within CSS, within JavaScript to improve that experience and take advantage of all of the modern affordances that we have available to us. For example, if we have a checkout form, making sure that form can be submitted to the server side would be a sort of non-negotiable piece. There is a form that has a submit button that will send it to the back end, and the back end will be able to respond to that form. Now, the form itself should, of course, have labels for each of the fields. If there is a field that is an email field, you can use the type email. Browsers that don't understand type email will just fall back to that being a standard input. So no harm, no foul, but for browsers that do understand email, they'll provide validation against that. And we can enhance that experience visually using CSS, making it adapt to different screen sizes. If we start with a mobile first perspective, we can build everything vertically. We're thinking about that portrait view on a narrow device. And then as we have media queries available, and have larger devices, we can begin to adjust that layout to make it more appropriate for longer line lengths and really take advantage of the additional real estate that we have available to us. Maybe we dynamically load some additional details or shift things around a little bit to take better advantage of that circumstance. But all of that information, the ability to check out is never dependent on your being on a widescreen or you having media queries. And then we can use JavaScript on top of that to enhance the experience further. That's where we're 
using local storage to store a copy of what it is that they have in their cart while they're in the process of putting things together. And then if something happens during the submission or the browser crashes, we can recover their cart even in the absence of a session or something of that nature. We can send things to the back end using fetch to not have to do a full page refresh. We can use things like I mentioned, like the view transitions to shift the cart into the order receipt or something like that. There's interesting things that we can begin to do in that space to enhance that experience and make it better and better for the people who are on more modern devices that have better capabilities, have better support for different CSS features, JavaScript features, and so on. How do you think developers should be thinking about progressive enhancement in 2023? It's something that has remained relevant. It's wild to think about it, but the concept of progressive enhancement has been around for 20 years now, which is wild. I'm lucky enough to have picked it up fairly early on. Those of you who are listening to the podcast can't see the gray in my beard, but I've, I've earned it all, I promise you. Having made lots of mistakes, seeing the problems inherent with making assumptions about who our users are, how they're going to be accessing our content. I'm based in the US. I'm based in Seattle, which tends to be fairly wealthy as far as around the tech areas, downtown, that sort of stuff. But I live in the southern part of Seattle and in a much more working class neighborhood. So I see a lot of people who are not on the latest and greatest devices, who are on pay-as-you-go plans or using older Android devices or older iPhones who don't have that access. And so I think it's helpful for us to find ways to broaden our sphere of influence, what we're experiencing and broaden our idea of what is going on really in the world, like the real state of things in terms of what devices people are using. And we can have an eye towards, you know, what can we do in the future? How can we improve things? I think we should always be looking forward, but I think we also need to be thinking about how can I build something that is going to be incredibly robust in order to, to not artificially suppress my customer base. This is something that was, this is going to date me saying this, but I'm the editor-in-chief of The List Apart. I've been working on the magazine for a long time. And back in the Netscape 4 days, we actually, during a redesign, stopped delivering CSS not all CSS, but like advanced CSS to Netscape 4 by doing some adjustments using the media that was associated with the style sheet. And what we found when we did that, which was totally baffling, was that all of a sudden our Netscape 4 numbers went up. And the reason was that the experience of the CSS prior to that redesign was not great in Netscape. And when we went to this new design where it was focused on more modern devices and stuff like that, but we said, you know what, these older devices, we're just not going to deliver CSS to them at all. Now, all of a sudden, there was something that was actually usable and people were able to access that. And so we removed that artificial suppression that was in place. And that artificial suppression is something that is incredibly hard to measure because we often don't know that it exists because we're not looking for it. Obviously, you can't support every single device that has ever existed. How do you know when? something is too old to support. Like, how do you come up with that decision where, okay, this is probably as far back as we can go? I'd say on the whole, the cutoff is, it's not as hard and fast. Like we absolutely cannot support these devices. The only place that you run into that is with encryption. So older devices are not going to have 
newer forms of encryption that maybe the server that you happen to be running on only allows or there's problems security-wise with serving a certificate that would work on an older device. That's one area where you can actually, and you should have a hard cutoff and it's unfortunate, but maybe you have some sort of experience that could be HTTP. So basically not putting things like your FAQ and how to contact customer service and things like that behind SSL so that you make sure that somebody can still access those on a device that doesn't have you know, the latest and greatest security packages. But beyond that, I really like the approach that Brad Frost proposed, which was having this concept of support versus optimization. So looking to support as many devices as possible. So that's the long tail of devices. And that's where having that functional baseline is really useful. And then you're focusing on optimizing only for the devices that you are seeing used and maybe a handful of ones that you expect your customers are using or that you've seen your customers use in access logs or something of that nature. I would throw in there making sure that you are actually checking usage, not requiring JavaScript because a lot of people rely on their analytics package, which is JavaScript based to collect the device data and browser data. You want to make sure you're actually checking the raw logs, the raw access logs as well to be able to get a clear picture of who is accessing because if there's not JavaScript running, your JavaScript package isn't going to collect any analytics. So I've had people say to me, we don't have any users that don't have JavaScript. And I was like, okay, how are you recording it? We're using Google Analytics, which is JavaScript based. So yeah, that's obvious. You wouldn't have those show up. So you need some fallbacks, right? You need to make sure you're getting a complete picture. That allows your team to not have to spend a lot of time focusing on older devices. Maybe you bust out an old device that you picked up on eBay that you know still has Wi-Fi, so you don't have to have a data plan for it, but just to like spot check something to see if it works. But you don't have to over-index on that, and you can spend your time investing in the future. And I, I think when you adopt the progressive enhancement mindset, it takes a little bit of time to shift over to that, to shift to that sort of layered thinking. But once you do, it becomes really easy to support those older devices because you're already thinking about, okay, what could happen? What are my dependencies that could not be met? And how do I ensure that there is an experience for users that don't have that dependency? It's really about removing fragility from our code. It's about building more robust applications. And when we think about it that way, we do get to focus on those new devices, focus on those new APIs, as long as we're not cutting off people artificially. At the same time, I do think there are instances where, you know, let's say you're building an image editor or a video editor online. Yeah, you probably need to have some APIs that are non-negotiable. And in that case, yes, by all means, that's where you should be investing your time. And you don't need to worry about having experience for older devices, but your marketing site and such should be able to be used on those older devices regardless. And you need to have clear guidelines as to here's what we're supporting. Here's how far back we're supporting. And it's helpful to tell people why as well, that it's not like just some arbitrary thing. Like we need a browser that supports in the case of us recording this online, we need microphone support. And in this case, video support as well. So if we don't provide access to that, you don't get to have an experience. Same thing would happen with Teams or Zoom or what have you as well, right? There's a certain bar that needs to be met for some applications, but I think a lot of times as developers, we are inclined to like make our lives easier by only having to test certain devices and just setting arbitrary cutoffs to try and make our lives easier when 
we should be thinking about how can we support the widest range of potential customers in order to build value for our business. One like attitude I see sometimes is we don't have the resources to test all these things. We're just going to test what I have in front of me. And if it works there, that's good enough. So I want to shift this topic to you. I was wondering if you can tell us about your role at Microsoft. So now I have shifted, as I mentioned, over to focusing on accessibility innovation. So I am running the AI for Accessibility grant program, which just wrapped up its fifth year. Through that program, we have funded all kinds of different projects and programs. Some of those have been things like Mentra, which is a like a job placement network basically for people who are neurodivergent. And it matches employers who are looking for neurodivergent talent with neurodivergent folks who are looking for work. It's a really cool approach to job seeking. And it's interesting because the way that they work it is you build a profile on there as a job seeker and you say what accommodations you need. Let's say a quiet environment. I need to not have fluorescent lights overhead. Whatever it is that you need to be able to be your most productive, you identify what your awesome skills are, like which things you are particularly good at, whether that's I'm really excellent at debugging code or I'm really excellent at doing really focused, deep work things that are somewhat negotiable for you from a work area, work preferences, that sort of thing. Like, I like to work flexibly, those sorts of things. And you put that together in your profile, and then job posters will say what they can accommodate, what accommodations they have built into their offices and to their work styles, that sort of stuff. And they're using AI to match those profiles and actually suggesting people to the potential employer that here's some profiles that match, here's the percentage that they match based on what it is that you're able to do in terms of accommodations, in terms of what you need of skills, et cetera, et cetera. Potential employers actually then reach out to the prospective employees in order to begin that communication. So it's not something where the job seeker is having to spend a lot of emotional energy tracking down and applying for and given today's climate, getting rejected from jobs or not gotten back to it all, et cetera. It's flipping the script on a lot of the approach to job placement. And I think that's really cool. The entire team behind the product is neurodivergent, which is pretty awesome. And so they're really approaching the whole thing with the mindset of what it is that they need as a community. So that one's super exciting. Some other things that are are happening in that space, we're doing some work right now with a project called iWill in India, and they are trying to address the need for mental health services in India, where they only have, I think it's 0.4 mental health practitioners per 100,000 people. They really don't have the number of professionals they need to serve the population that they have. And what the iWill project is doing is training a chatbot end-to-end in Hindi to be able to have cognitive behavioral therapy sessions with the people that need it. And the organization that pitched us on this project already had a successful CBT chatbot in India in English, but they were looking to branch out and be able to support more people in Hindi. And it was really important to us in our discussions with them, that model be trained end to end in Hindi so that you weren't doing leapfrogs from Hindi to English and having the chatbot figure out what to say back in English and then translating it back to Hindi where we're dealing with mental health here. This is a really important thing to get right. We want to make sure that model is being trained correctly. We also want to make sure that there's not 
a creep in of additional Western influence to the cognitive behavioral therapy that's taking place. And so that was another important aspect of this and why training that model end-to-end in Hindi was important to us. So lots of really cool projects like that that are taking place, really interesting things where we're people are just using technology to really open up new opportunities for people with disabilities in their employment, in their education, certainly. Vembi is another one that we've funded, and they have a low-cost Braille reader that they built and really trying to move the needle and bring more opportunities for more people. I saw you have an article, Opportunities for AI and Accessibility. So how are you thinking about AI in 2023? And like, how's Microsoft approaching AI? Anyone who has access to a newspaper or online magazine or what have you can probably find out Microsoft's approach to AI, AIing all the things. As we're recording this, Microsoft Inspire is going on and there's been lots of new announcements of new co-pilots and stuff like that. A lot of the development community is probably familiar with GitHub Copilot and maybe somewhat familiar with more of the large language model stuff like ChatGPT and probably the image generation stuff, whether that's Stable Diffusion, whether that's Dolly or, or some of the others. There's huge opportunities in a bunch of different ways. So I will say up front, I am fairly skeptical about AI. I think there's a lot more that we have to do. I use the term AI loosely. I don't believe that there is actually intelligence there. Some people can come at me on Twitter about that, whatever. I don't know that we're heading towards the singularity just because the tests that I've done so far and playing with things just on my own time, I'm not overly impressed with sentence structure, for instance, in terms of asking ChatGPT to write a couple of paragraphs about a particular topic. I was amused to find myself cited when I asked it to tell me about progressive enhancement, but I saw it using a lot of repetition. And when I asked it to talk about progressive enhancement in the context of various JavaScript frameworks, it gave me a rundown of various JavaScript frameworks, many of which did not ascribe to progressive enhancement, but it made the same claims about their support for progressive enhancement, literally in the same sentence structure. It was such just cursory. It reminded me of content farms. That's really what it felt like. And I'm not sure if that's because a lot of the content that was ingested to create some of those models was content farm generated content, which I see a lot in pitches for a list apart and such as well. It's something I have a lot of familiarity with. I've got a, a big skeptical hat on. That said, I do think that there is a lot of opportunity for these tools to be used in concert with our own processes, the human in the loop concept. And so I love the idea of co-pilots. I love the idea of having tools that can make suggestions for how we can improve things, being able to ask a hub co-pilot or some similar tool, like, how can I make this code more readable? Are there potential issues with what I've written here that might create security vulnerabilities? That's super powerful. That makes us better programmers. And honestly, it's a step to the side and maybe a bit ahead of where a lot of developers are in terms of having a question, going to Stack Overflow, getting the answer and just dropping it in without really thinking about it. But they can actually ask the co-pilot, can you explain the solution that you have? Can you write comments to explain the code that you just provided me with? Really having the tools there as per LLMs described as a great improv partner. And so I like that idea of being able to basically pair program with tool that has knowledge of a lot of different code bases and approaches to solving a given problem. I think some of the coding results are really good. I think a lot of the coding results are 
inaccessible and that's somewhat problematic. And I think the proliferation of tools like this creates a lot of opportunities to make things a lot worse in terms of whether that's exponentially increasing the amount of inaccessible code or whether that's expanding the use of ableist terms. There's lots of potential downsides to this, but I think there's also opportunities. In that article, I talked a lot about alt text because that's something that's been brought up as we've had a couple of generations of image describers at this point of varying quality. Those will continue to improve, but I like the idea of having that tool in the loop where it can take a stab at providing alternative text for an image. And even if seeing that prompts you to say, oh, that's not right at all. That's not where I want the focus to be in terms of describing this particular image. Even if that prompt is just like a nag at you to change it to something that you actually want, I feel like that's a net positive. So I think that's a good thing. I could see a future where we could begin to enable people to interrogate images, interrogate graphics, things like visualizations, things like charts, to be able to ask questions about it. Even as a sighted person, for instance, be able to simplify or change the format of a visualization. Maybe I need to change it to accommodate the particular kind of colorblindness that I have, or I want to reduce the visual noise in it by dropping out a couple of the lines if it's a line chart or something like that. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And then, of course, there's huge opportunities in things like, I look at Volley, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but that's where you can, it's called few shot training, where you can actually train an AI driven voice from just a few seconds of recordings of your voice. That is incredibly scary from a deep fake standpoint, but at the same time is potentially transformative for people who are losing use of their voice, whether they have something like ALS or something like that. So I, I see that as being a double-edged sword, right? And we need to be, it just, it makes it important for us to red team or catastrophize, however you want to look at it. We need to think about what are the things that could be done with this that would be bad and how can we put mitigations in place to avoid those risks, right? In order to be able to provide the most benefit with the least risk for people overall. So I think things like that are just amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So can you briefly tell us about your book, Adaptive Web Design, and what exactly does adaptive web design mean in 2023 now? I originally wrote Adaptive Web Design, the first edition back in 2010, and it came out in 2011. The second edition I wrote in 2015, and it came out in 2016. So right around the time that progressive web apps were starting to be a thing. And adaptive web design was my way of trying to encapsulate what progressive enhancement is all about. I feel like progressive enhancement is a bit of a mouthful. Adaptive web design was a, a good way to encapsulate that concept and really put it in the framework of the DAO of web design and John Alsop's work and responsive web design, which when I was writing the first edition, Ethan Marcotte's article, responsive web design had just come out. And so I was thinking about it in that broad perspective, I guess, as like, here is a rubric for understanding how to build a web that actually adapts to the needs of your users. And in each of those editions, I really wanted it to be a philosophy book that had code examples to help you along with understanding what the philosophy was and how that showed up in code. And to not have it be a like, 
here's the latest and greatest way to do X, Y, or Z. I really wanted it to be framework agnostic. I wanted it to basically be able to have shelf life, which a lot of tech books, frankly, don't have. I've been really impressed. Now we're, what, seven years after the second edition came out, and I still get messages from people who are like, I just finished reading Adaptive Web Design, and it spoke to me. It really helped me to put web design in perspective in a different way. And it wasn't how I was taught in school or in the boot camp that I did or what have you. And it really made me think differently about the way that I'm approaching what it is that I'm creating for the web. It makes me so happy to hear that and to see that it's continuing to resonate with people. Because I look back to books that really had a profound effect on me, like The Pragmatic Programmer, stuff like that, that really were more philosophy books. And that's what I wanted to create. Awesome. It was awesome talking to you, Aaron. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris.